Welcome listeners, this is Rusty Reno in the First Things offices at the Editor's Desk, and this is the latest installment of the Editor's Desk podcast. And I thought today we would draw in another resident of the First Things office and another editor from her own desk, Julia Yost, senior editor at First Things and author of a review in the November issue of First Things. No, it's the October issue, isn't it, Julia? Uh, could be, yes. Is that, it, is, it is the October issue. By Our Wounds, We Are Healed, the title of the review. And it's a review of Bessel van der Kolk's really kind of fabulously best-selling book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. Well, thanks, Julia. I'm glad you could uh, be on the podcast. Thanks for asking, Rusty. I remember when this book came forward as a potential book to review, I I was I was sort of uh, saying, well, isn't this book been out for a, a good while? And I think I remember I looked it up online and, ah, it's the book with the Matisse on the front cover. Is that right? Am I, uh-huh. Have I got that right? I think that's right. Yeah. And I, I remember as soon as I saw that book cover, it just flashed to me many times that I've seen that book on, you know, some sort of coffee shop table inevitably being read by a woman. Yes. Yes. Every millennial woman has read this book. Not just them, but all of them. them. (laughs) When did it come out? It came out in 2014. Uh, So a good seven years ago, but it's been on and off the bestseller list since then, mostly on. And it's currently number one on the New York Times paperback nonfiction bestseller list. It's held that position since February. And it's been on the list for 154 consecutive weeks, which is just about three years. So Wow, every writer's dream. I know. (laughs) Uh, So published seven years ago, but in the last three years, it's more popular than ever. So it does seem to have anticipated the zeitgeist somehow or arguably generated it. Well, give us the basic argument that Van der Kolk presents in, in this volume. Yeah, so it's it's actually a little elusive, I find, but here's how I understand it. Uh, first, there's the basic idea that um, he works very hard to establish that psychological trauma can produce chronic physiological symptoms, whether that's migraines or back pain, fatigue, asthma, or tension and pain in the part of the body affected during the trauma. This idea is not original to van der Kolk, and it's not particularly controversial, But van der Kolk connects it to a second argument that memory for trauma is characteristically fragmented and partly or wholly repressed, that the psychodynamics of trauma make the memory of it inaccessible to narrative consciousness. So this is the promise and the threat of the body's scorekeeping. Traumas that might otherwise have been forgotten forever become legible if you know how to read the body's signs. So this thesis also is not original to van der Kolk, but it has been quite controversial, as in the so-called memory wars of the 1990s. The idea that memory of trauma is ordinarily submerged has very serious implications, certainly for the arbitration of sex abuse claims in our courts, but more broadly, 
Van der Kolk is insinuating in these very generous therapeutic terms what I take to be a very contemporary idea that trauma is everywhere. It's pervasive. It's systemic, even if we can't see it. And this is a potentially paranoid <laughs> hermeneutic, which Van der Kolk kind of, uh, expands on a bit later in the book. He did testify in, mm-hmm. I think, clerical abuse cases. And so he's a he's an expert. Right, he runs yeah, this, quote unquote. But yes, but right. I mean, he he's um, uh, he runs a center for, I guess, therapy for people who are mm-hmm. thought to suffer from from trauma. What remind me? What does you, you discuss that? Uh, that I mean, um, he's he's a clinician. He's been he's been working with trauma victims for years and years, and. Um, I mean, no one, no one can doubt. I think his his very genuine concern for them, and I, I just kind of doubt his um, understanding of what their real problems are. But yeah, he founded in 1982 a trauma center in Brookline, Massachusetts. Now, once upon a time, trauma center meant you know emergency <laughs> gunshot room. wounds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now it means. Um, you're unhappy. You were abused as a child. And so this is where you go and do mm. yoga and um, mindfulness meditation and things like this. So he had established that in 1982. And um, this is maybe getting a little ahead of the story, but he had an, a sort of a comeuppance, I thought, in 2017 after Me Too got going. Uh, he was actually fired by the um, nonprofit that uh, was kind of over that trauma center, over allegations that he had created a hostile work environment. Now, I actually don't think there's really anything to that. Um, his acolytes were very traumatized by the news that he had <laughs> traumatized his employees. A source of very, trauma. Yes, yes. The trauma, trauma at the trauma center. Um, but so, I mean, that was kind of delicious and hilarious. But no, I, I don't... I, honestly, I think that this was probably just a human resources problem that dovetailed with some internal politics. Mm. Um, but I am not trauma conscious in the way that Vanderkolk says we all should be. And if you are trauma conscious in the way he says that we all should be, there's no such thing as just a human resources problem. Everything is trauma. Everyone is traumatized. Everything, everything you know, precipitates victim categories. So. Um, yeah, I regarded that not as a discrediting moment, but as uh, you know, potentially a uh, learning experience for Bessel. But I don't think he actually learned anything from it. Right. So your your thought here is that if we theorize the ubiquity of trauma, then disgruntled. I mean, you know, uh, people have people can be unhappy in the workplace for lots of reasons, and and no one can gainsay that reality. But if you if you make trauma the all-explaining source of unhappiness, then yes. surprise, surprise, you know your your underlings search around in their recovered memory for <laughs> for the reasons why you've made them feel unhappy. Well, totally. let's probe that. Um, trauma is fundamental. I mean, we do have that. Whether it's a sixteen nineteen project that ultimately the country is founded on a trauma, on, a, on an original sin, on a grave injustice, um, or patriarchy. That's, you know, when I was a grad student, that was really had a had gotten a, a big head of steam behind it. So it, we do have a academic culture, an intellectual culture 
that tends to root around in all kinds of cultural phenomena to find some sort of dark evil that's really the animating source of things. So, so am I right that he's in yes. a kind of pop psychological way following in that same cultural groove? Yes. And I think that um, the pop psychology version of this, um, I, I think it came into being around the same time uh, that the academic version of it did. Uh, they both date to the 1980s, I think. I mean, at least they really came into their own during the 1980s. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Van der Kolk has a, has a lot of academic cred, but he's writing a popular book and he's writing, I mean, he's pretty much in the genre of the 1980s, um, you know, sex abuse survivors classic, The Courage to Heal. He's, hmm. um, he's teaching a mass audience how to understand their lives with respect to trauma and probably how to understand their lives as, um, as, as damaged by trauma. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's not just an academic phenomenon. I think we have to talk about, um, all sorts of other things that are going on really, really at a basic level, um, with, with real people, not necessarily on campus. Um, we have a, a social order that's kind of lost confidence in itself and you gain stature within it by claiming to be irreconcilably at odds with it. I mean, that's a prestige move, but it's, it's, it's becoming more, it's becoming a more popular move as well. Um, and they're just, you know, they're the really timeless things going on here. I think you don't have to spend a lot of time observing mankind to observe that a non-trivial minority of folks love to be sick, love to be broken. Um, they're not happy unless they have some kind of grave complaint and they'll make it up if they have to. Um, there's a very revealing passage in The Courage to Heal from the 1980s where the authors just say, ladies, you'll be so relieved when you finally remember your trauma. Finally, there's someone, something to blame for all your problems. And if you're at all a critic of this movement, you think, wow, I'm really grateful to them for coming out and saying it because I thought that's what was going on. <laughs> um, they don't often admit it. Well, um, right. Uh, you've got that great passage in your review. You point out that uh, Vanderkoek, he, he wants, he claims that we don't want to remember these things. Oh, it's such then, a lie. Such and then you quote, you you quote Paul McHugh's observation that as a psychiatrist in the 80s he was besieged by women who begged him to provide them with the memories that they couldn't provide for themselves. <laughs> this is so true. This is so true. I think there there are other things going on too. Um I think that today kind of idiomatically trauma has become an aspect of psychic depth in much the way that neurosis was during the heyday of psychoanalysis. Yes. Uh, and if you know about the early history of psychoanalysis, you'll see how appropriate it is that trauma and neurosis should be interchangeable in this way. At any rate, in both cases, there's, you know, an excavation of what lies buried in your psyche and your psyche therefore becomes a site of great interest and significance. Um, and I think, yeah, the final thing I might say is that it's very notable that Vanderkolk's remedies for PTSD are these very holistic approaches to repairing the mind-body connection. 
yoga, mindfulness, dance. And these are the very typical pursuits of cultivated people who just want to be in touch with themselves. Nothing wrong with these activities, um, but his prescription of them is consistent with my suspicion that part of the popular rage for trauma consciousness is it's about becoming a more fully realized bourgeois subject. What, I mean, being in touch, that's, uh, that is an interesting metaphor and being in touch with oneself, I suppose in a traditional culture, the imperative is to be in touch with the sacred or to be in touch with God or to be in touch with truth or beauty or something like that. But in your formulation, I think it's, I think it's quite accurate. The imperative, at least in the bourgeois world is to be in touch with yourself. Yeah. Uh, That's a, that's an interesting, why would one, I've always thought, I've always thought, huh, in what sense could you ever not be in touch with yourself? <laughs> you know, it's a, yeah. it's an interesting project. Um, I mean, man is a mystery to man. And so it's an understandable impulse to want to know who, who you really are or what you really think or, or what you really feel. Um, it's funny. I think um, it is a upper middle class imperative. I mean, there are many people who, if you if you told them I want to be in touch with my, you should be in touch with yourself. They would laugh and say, "Actually, no. I'd rather go have a beer and be a little less in touch with myself." Totally. Uh, yeah, I mean, from Vanderkolk's perspective, what does this mean? It basically means that um, one of the effects of trauma is that it's you know, your your body responds with these defense mechanisms that sort of cut you off from um, being in the moment, sort of being being present to um, current uh, current happenings and events. Your actual experience cuts you off from the real sensations of your body and so on. So he's he's very interested in, and for all I know, that's actually true. I'm not myself traumatized, alas. Um, but <laughs> for all I know, this is this is very accurate, and he is right to be, you know, looking to repair these connections. So I think that is kind of his particular version of this cliche, which has been around for how long? I don't know. Was that minted in the '60s or something? '50s? No, I I think Freud. Okay. Yeah. Goes and sees that part of talk therapy is to sure. achieve a kind of cognitive mastery over your afflictions. Um, I mean, Stoics, Stoicism is also a kind of cognitive mastery, but Stoicism, the mastery is you, you don't think about yourself, but rather you think about, you know, the universal in ancient Stoicism. But for Freud, you achieve self-mastery by, I guess, telling a coherent story about yourself. Yeah, certainly. And And, And that remains van der Kolk's ideal too. I mean, you, you will have recovered from your trauma once you, you know, are sufficiently, you know, secure in yourself that you can relocate, the, you can locate the trauma within a coherent story about yourself. It, I'm skeptical that, I don't doubt that that works in some regards, but I'm skeptical, skeptical of that as the sort of the only way. Um I certainly, I mean, I have friends who are old enough to have grown up in 
in a in a Jewish world populated by Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. And the last thing they they did is tell a story about themselves that revolved around that trauma. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. The impulse, the general impulse was to to not bring it to mind and rather to live a firm life, a, f- a firm the alternative, not to integrate it into one's life, but actually actually to forge a life uh, um, that's beyond it, so to speak. So I, yeah, there are, probably, there are probably many ways in which one can live a, a fully human life, even in the shadow of grave evils that are inflicted upon one. Uh, upon one. Yes. And, and but it does seem as though in this case, there there is the one ring that rules them all for him. <laughs> Absolutely. And a, and a to use the word stoic in a common, you know, just in the usual way, a stoic kind of stealing of oneself and just moving on. It's just not. He he would say that this won't work. No, no, it won't work. Hmm. Um, I think that just to. Um, add this bit to the discussion of being in touch. Um, and well, and this gets to the issue of the body, right? Which is so, so important throughout the book. It's right there in the title. He is very concerned um, with the alienation of people from their bodies, from the um, their bodily sensations, kind of the information their bodies give them, if you're not kind of comfortable, secure in your body, you have big, big problems. I think this is part of what makes his argument so popular uh, because it does it does seem to strike a chord with people's basic anxieties about being about the minds being alienated from the body. Um, I, and I think this is one of the reasons that a lot of people of a pretty traditional religious bent are um, very receptive to this book because they they too are concerned about a kind of Cartesian split and how do we, um, you know, how, how do we mend that? And th- this seems like a kind of uh, a method of doing that that has some some popular kind of zeitgeisty purchase. Do we really live in a period where people are alienated from their bodies? That's an interesting... That is a good question. I'm not saying I'm worried about this, but I'm saying a lot of people seem to be worried well, about Like, for it. instance, I look at um, piercings, tattooing. It seems that we live in an mm-hmm. age when people are acutely, or that they seem to want to sort of make their mind, imprint their mind upon their body, so to speak. In other words, you know, sure. I, I want to actually carve it or 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 paint on it. As opposed to in my childhood, it was, yeah, it was, that was really not in the cars and also bodybuilding and, um, they they have these salons here in New York that are literally called body sculpting. They advertise to do body sculpting. Sure. But I mean, does that, is that maybe a sign of the alienation rather than. Well, exactly. Exactly. Does that bespeak comfort with the body or a kind of. A, d- a discomfort with it and a wondering, well, how do I get this thing to express me? Because oh, it see. doesn't. It, no, it you're right. That could be, box. it could be a symptom of what he is concerned about and what, because you, you quote Aaron Cariotti in your review and Aaron is sympathetic to the way that the book helps overcome an overly intellectualized 
understanding of our afflictions. Yes. Um, yeah. Where, where does, uh, uh, you know, what you are, you have written, you know, powerfully on the dangers of recovered memory. And this plays an important role in the book. The, the um, insistence that we, the insistence that there's this trauma that has to be brought out and made explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, how how powerful of a role does that play in the book? I think I think it's very important. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's pretty central to his um, I think privileging of the body as a text on which trauma is inscribed. It's so crucial because often, indeed, perhaps ordinarily, uh, the memory the memory disappears as soon as it's made. And so, if you're, you know, if these um, if these traumas are to be uh, made legible, it will have to be um, through physiological symptoms. So, uh, I think that Vanderkolk's belief in recovered memory ideology is very central to what he's trying to theorize in this book. And it's also, uh, as you suggest, Rusty, one of the reasons that I thought someone needed to take a whack at this thing in the seventh year of its (laughs) existence, because nobody's really, really attempted, um, at least in a kind of standalone way to, to take this down. I think it's, there, there are real problems. He, yes, he boasts about his, um, his uh, expert intervention in the the Paul Shanley case in Boston, which is one yes. of the central spotlight cases, which we're all supposed to take so very seriously. But the actual legal case against Shanley is, is such mendacious garbage. And for the record, Shanley was not my kind of priest, if you know <laughs> what I mean. So I don't have any ideological interest in defending him. But... Um, you know, Vanderkolk concedes that the memories of Shanley's accuser are incoherent and fragmentary. He does not add that they're uncorroborated, which they are. Um, but he takes the incoherence as a mark of their truthfulness because that's what traumatic memory is like. So in other words, this stuff is uncorroborated. It makes no sense and it's totally unfalsifiable. And this is the kind of thing that makes me really angry. Um, Vanderkolk seems like a very nice man. He has a soft-looking beard, very pleasant Dutch accent, and no doubt he's very kind to all his patients, but he is also peddling certain fallacies, and there is a body count. And this is something that I do think his admirers should be made to confront. The whole thing about, about recovered memory is very interesting because I think that uh, we had sort of thought that it was killed in the latter half of the 90s and it was just going to go away um, because it suffered a number of high profile defeats um, in media and the courts. But it does seem to be returning to privilege and prestige in an interesting way in the era of Me Too. So that was another reason why I thought that this book had a real, uh, real relevance. Is, is sexual abuse trauma prominent in the book? Or is it? it oh yes, so the, yes. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of the paradigmatic uh, type of trauma. So he doesn't he, does he deal with you know soldiers and battlefield? But, he does, yes. 
car accidents. But yeah, yeah, because I do think that uh, we are living in a kind of paradoxical time of uh, cheery affirmations of sexual liberation combined with these just sort of dark anxieties, and so the the way in which our society fixes on on these on these uh, kind of sexual predation and so forth and becomes just inflamed with uh, horror and outrage, I think is somehow tied with our libertinism in an odd way, mm -hmm. kind of um, Durkheim's notion of anomic horror, the things that are unregulated then become all the more awesome and threatening in, in, in our, in our psyches. Well, Julia, thank you for chatting about uh, this, uh, this very interesting um, phenomenon, which I think you would agree with me is probably not going to go away. No, I don't <laughs> think so. I think so. Bookmark okay. this one. All right. See you in the office tomorrow. All right. Bye -bye. Yeah, thanks, Rusty.